All right, welcome back, everyone. It's with great pleasure that we are back for Luke's Talk Wine, Episode 5, Season 2. Is this how the intro goes? Have you got a new intro? No, the intro goes, (laughs) sorry. Hi, I'm Luke Campbell, and I work for a small wine company, and he's Luke Morris, and... Uh, I work for a bigger wine company. And together we are Luke's Talk Wine. We talk about all things wine and booze and popular culture. Think when to drink it, why we drink it, and the culture that surrounds drinking. Hello, Luke. G'day, Campbell. How's it going? Very, very, very well. Very, very well. And good afternoon to the listening audience. This week on Episode 5, Season 2, have we got a week for you this week's this week's topic is uh, a topic very de- near and dear to my heart. In fact, it is our favourite winemakers. Who are the winemakers that you follow year in, year out? Whether they're from abroad or Australia, it doesn't matter. Who are the fa- who are your favourite winemakers? And a question from the listening audience, actually. And if people want to get in touch with us and send us a question, you can do that. How can you do that, Luke Morris? Uh, the email address is lukestalkwine at gmail.com. And this week's list of questions, which we'll talk about later in the half hour, is tell, talk to me or tell me about the Riverina wine region. So we'll be delving, <laughs> we'll be delving deep into the broad and murky territory that is the, the Riverina. But, you can go deep into the Riverina? But first, as always and with every week, yeah. What's been happening in your wine world this week, pal? Uh, Luke, yes, I am in uh, Adelaide still, and I met someone who's uh, listened to the podcast, and they said it's really good, and that's cool. And well, at uh, least we've got one listener. We do have one. We have we have a few. Just don't don't beat us down. We're, we're, we're doing okay. Thanks. Um, what they say? Oh, they really loved episode two when we talked about music and wine. Oh, yes. I said that was one of the funniest things and best things I've heard on a podcast <laughs> in a long time. I yes. thought, cool. And then I thought, well, let's. I don't, I don't want to rehash things. I don't want to bring it back. But, Campbell, what kind of movie is Zinfandel? Oh, Zinfandel would have to be a very loud, raucous movie. <laughs> oh, do you think so? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I thought Spaghetti Western. Right. Do tell, do tell. Oh, well, partly because Zinfandel, also known as um, Primitivo, oh, the, the Primitivo yeah. uh, Italian grape varietal, but also, like you said, quite loud and, and, and brash. So I was thinking something that's like an action movie. And so merge those two things together, action movie, Italy, Spaghetti Western. <laughs> Well, I, like, I, I like where you're going with that. I, I do like where you're going with that, but uh, yeah, yeah, I can be. Taught. You, you want to get? What do you want to do? Like uh, Die Hard or something? Well, you, you need something that's gone uh, fairly far because it's often pushed to the limit. Um, Zinfandel is. Oh yeah, it's over extracted. It's full. It's a beast. Um, you know, you're not really sure if it's Christmas cake or not, which is diehard all over. You're not really sure if it's a Christmas movie or not. 
Certainly, I was thinking of Starship Troopers when you're watching it. I'm not sure if this is a commentary on the war and the the status of humanity or just a sci-fi silly movie with big bugs. Fair enough. Well, where, where does this topic come from? This is out of left center. It's uh, it's obviously got you thinking though this week, pal. What's uh, where's it come from? No, it's just it's just chatting to uh, a friend Rachel. who said that she enjoyed the podcast and really liked the move, the music thing. I thought, okay, what else is there? What what could be? If Savignon Blanc was a movie, what would it be, Campbell? What kind of movie is Savignon Blanc? I'm thinking a rom com. Maybe not a rom-com. Maybe a, oh, not a period piece. A period piece might be something like Sunset. What, what is that? Um, what, what's that movie? Um, it is a rom-com, but it's like how, how to how to lose a date in fifty tries or something. Um, how to lose a know, guy in ten now. days? Yeah, that that might be Taming right. How to the lose shrew. a guy in ten days? No, no, no. <laughs> Julia Stiles. Yeah, taming, yeah, that's Taming of the Shrew. How to lose a guy in ten yeah. days is uh, Hamlet's Taming of the Shrew. Yep, Starring Julia Stiles and Australia's own uh, Heath Ledger. That's it. Boom. That That's what uh, right there is what Sauvignon Blanc is. How, yeah. how is that? I've, uh, not that? I've not seen the movie, but what, what's in the movie that makes you think so Blanc? You, you, you get into the movie and then it falls off a cliff. You get into the movie <laughs> and then it falls off a cliff. Much like the taming of the shrew, which changes directions every seven seconds. So does. So it's Daniel not Blanc. like Thelma and Louise? No, it hasn't got the integrity to be Thelma and Louise. Oh, okay. <laughs> but speaking what of about movies, if it was, and- What was Polly Fumay? Would Polly Fumay be a um, Thelma and Louise? I suppose it doesn't fall off a cliff. It has plenty of integrity. It does have plenty of integrity. Well, Polly Fumay, um, yeah, it's got a little bit more style about it. Bridget Jones' diary? No, that's not no. right. No, no, no that doesn't God. fit. Probably for me, mate. Maybe like a film noir because it's a bit smoky. Something like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Casablanca. Perfect. <laughs> Probably for me is Casablanca. Yeah, right, yeah. You're just agreeing with me now. You're not no, really no, in the conversation. No. It's a very good question you raise, and it's kind of blindsided me because I wasn't prepared for it. But that's all right. I love a bit of questions without notice because it gets yeah. you thinking. It promotes yeah. the brain cells movement. Unbelievably, I've still got some left after 25 <laughs> years in the industry. I do it. it think, you, got, you got me thinking of movies, and I, yeah. have you heard about this recent movie? Um, it's actually Australian writers and Australian producers. Blind. Oh, this blind can't ambition. be good. Yeah, blind, wasn't blind ambition. Yeah, it's from the guys who made Red Obsession. Um, you know the Rudy Kerwin oh, okay. story, and it is this. Um, effectively, would you say what? Like a team of Zimbabwean guys who come off the farm effectively and they, you know, they, they, with this unrivaled enthusiasm for wine, they team up. They're eager to find, you know, a a job in the industry and they leave leave Africa, wherever they're from, South Africa, Zimbabwe. I'm not quite sure because I haven't seen the movie. I've only read about it and it sounds excellent anyway yeah. they begin to study for the world what, what, what do they get interested in why do they get interested in wine what's the 
they get interested. Well, they're, they're from farmlands and things like oh, that. Okay. And they got, they got um, basically the, the, these guys are effectively they're refugees settled in South Africa and they begin to work in restaurants and, and retail in the wine industry and they, they team up. This is pre, pre-pandemic or just as the pandemic was, uh, you know, starting out. And they, off. They, they team up and begin tasting and training for the wine tasting championships of the world. And so you, you end up following their uh, plight across, you know, Europe and learning about wine. It's a competitive wine tasting film effectively. So it looks... Oh, we could great. do a watch along. Yeah, that absolutely. Fun. Blind ambition. Anyway, look at out. You just got me thinking about it um, when you started talking about wines and movies. But anyway. Hi, this is Luke Morris from Luke's Talk Wine. I've written some books. So visit lukemorrisha.com.au. Go there, see the books, buy one, support the podcast. That's lukemorrisha.com.au. L-U-K-E-M-O-R-R-I-S-H-A.com.au. Have a great day. On to our topic of the week, talking about wine. Isn't that what we do here on Luke's Talk Wine? And movies. Uh, and movies, <laughs> absolutely. And Riesling. Um, <laughs> tell me tell me about the Riverina, you know, the, 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 the big inland wine regions, Riverland, Murray-Darling, Riverina, they're all, they're all kind of... They're often tarred with the same brush, southeastern Australia. But what do you know about the Riverina, Luke Morris? Oh, very little, Luke Campbell. I can tell you that I think I sold a bunch of Riverina wines when I was working in the UK. I think they were labelled something like Sunny Valley or some sort of <laughs> guff like that. And it was, it, it, was, it was all on the back of the sunshine in a bottle kind of craze that Australia went out with, with cheap, cheap wine made in bulk vineyards which i'm sure you're going to correct me but that's what the riverina was to, was to me it was just a a land where you could plant as much as you want and just roll through some big hectare acreage and um make a lot of wine fairly quickly and low cost and and sell it over overseas and it was good for a little while, but then it, it, it wasn't so good because it just created this image of Australia selling bulk, good quality, but cheap wine, and it stifled the growth of our premium market. And yes, so that's it. Because other wine regions, such as uh, Chile, and specific, very much Chile and Argentina started to creep into the market at the lower end price point, it pushed Australia out and it just created a Issues, a glut, the, the wine glut in Australia developed. Well, that is a really great summation because you, you're right. The three regions in question there that uh, did stem uh, and create that glut, Riverland, Murray-Darling and the Riverina, are in that kind of um, right in the corner there in New South Wales and on the border of South Australia and a little bit into Victoria. It's often tarred yep. with that catch-all appellation of southeastern Australia and it's kind of the the, the, the flat plains kind of um, rich soils, heavily irrigated kind of irrigation scheme, if you will. But yep. producing, would you believe it, about 70% of 
of our country's Oof. wine by volume. A 70%. Oof. 70% comes out of there. Yep, 70%. So that How is, much um, of that is Yellowtail? Well, Casella are obviously one of the biggest producers. Um, so the Riverina, obviously, which is in New South Wales, you've got, which is where Casella's based. You know, DeBortley are there, McWilliams are there. DeBortley, McWilliams, yep. New, um, who else? Nugan Estate, Yarran Wines. They're all fairly very big, big producers. Yeah. Um, that strad- then straddling the border with the Murray Darling, you know, you've got things like Deacon Estate, Banrock Station, Zilzy Wines. Banrock um, Station, there's a there's a ring. hangover in a bottle, yeah. <laughs> or a box for that matter. <laughs> yeah. But a third, of, and then you've got the Riverland, obviously, which is entirely in SA, uh, bought right on the border, but entirely SA. And, you know, think of kind of Angoves, Growers Gate, Ricotera. These guys have got 20,000 hectares under vine. And just, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been a bit of a market change because they've now got, you know, 80-odd varieties planted out there. They're producing all manner of varieties from all over the world, whether Spanish grape varieties or more Mediterranean grape varieties from Montepulciano to Malbec from, you know, Malbec to Fiano from Fiano to not Gruner, but that other Austrian grape variety that's um, famous out there. Gewürz, not Gewürz. Gewürz another Austrian. There, but there's all many, there's 80 odd varieties planted out there and they all um, alternative varieties and as well as Noble back to back, but they are producing some amazing wines, you know, first planted back in 1913, you know, over 100 years later and we're still, you know, there's still family-known wineries because Cellar is a great one. They're still there. They're still finding places to put uh, sticks in the ground. That's amazing. Yeah, but I just, I just, the reason it came to the uh, foray this week is because I I noticed it on a, a label actually, they had labeled the actual vineyard and they labeled it the Riverland, like normally you would see. Oh my God! Are you telling me the Riverland's doing regionality? I am telling you. You know where this conversation's going. I am telling oh you, the Riverland. God, those is doing blind wine tasters have got another thing they've got to know. <laughs> uh, and it didn't taste like sand. I can tell you for nothing. It um, it actually was a delicious, <laughs> juicy summer drinking red, um, and it actually came off the Ricotera Farms. And it was utterly delicious. This wine, you know, it was under twenty bucks. Uh, it was red. It was juicy. It, yeah, I just fell in love with it. When I turned it over, it wasn't a Ricotera wine. It was a, another small producer that had got fruit from the um, vineyard, and you know, put it out and then labelled it themselves. But yeah, I just thought, wow, you know, that's taking some real cojones because they've labelled it Riverland. And they've used alternative grape varieties, so it's not going to be your easiest sell. Um, and they've printed the vineyard on the back, so more power to them. It's like that old George Mahaley theory in get all the information out there to the consumer as possible, um, and away you go. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful kind of um, representation of what the Riverland can do. And I think my question me, to you is: think of, has it changed? Like, has it has it changed my? It will change my uh, view of the Riverlands. It just made me think of um, Peter Cummings up at Waterwheel, who yeah. had s- some great old Shiraz vines because Waterwheel has been around for donkeys. 
but he used to and probably maybe still does um just blend those vines in with his younger vines and his theory being that that just improves the quality of the overall wine and so you've you always got a good quality wine to drink and that's fine but it sounds like what's happening is that the Riverland's been around for a while. There are good old vines in there, and somebody's just come along and said, "Why don't we just separate this this fruit out and and represent it for what it is?" Yep. And, well, that's exactly what had happened, and uh, yeah, in, in this case, and I just thought, more power to you, because um, oh, yeah, what's the guys that have that Ricketts farm? I can't remember, but they've been at it a long time. What, what's that? Rat- so is it, this is something that 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 they're offered to you? So they're trying to move it through to high end restaurants or or something like that. They're they're just trying. They're Absolutely. trying. No, they're, they're, they're going trying about get... it to try and pencil it as a um, as a high quality product. They're not just you know, it's not bulk anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. No, they're they're trying they're trying to sell it. You know, as a as a thirty thirty dollar wine. Yeah, not a bag in box three liter fifteen dollar thing. It's um. No, absolutely. They are trying to, um, yeah, push it in that, as you say, like not not premium, but drinkable scale rather than just forgettable scale. And that labeling it regionally is a big step forward. But um, yeah, if you've I ever drunk it, what? Absolutely. If you've ever drunk like, well, a Yellowtail, heaven forbid, or a Trentham Estate or a Zilzy wine, they're just kind of labeled yeah. with that broad brushstroke. They're not labelled by vineyard by any means, and they're certainly not certainly not labelled by region. You know, like they're labelled southeast. <laughs> they're, they're loosely labelled Shiraz to even. It's hard yeah. to well, that's, that's exactly hard to right. pinpoint exactly what they're doing. <laughs> loosely labelled, I do like that. Um, <laughs> speaking of loosely labelled, <laughs> oh yeah, this is going to be a good segue. Go on. <laughs> Speaking of loosely labelled, what are some of the labels, moreover, winemakers <laughs> you follow every year, year in, year out? <laughs> By labels, I mean winemakers. Okay, good. Yes. It's not easy being the host, Luke Morris. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> uh, some of the great names that I've seen on wine labels, uh, oh, gosh, I, uh, the first name that popped to mind when you said great winemakers, I thought of Trevor Mast. Yes. Uh, sadly, we can't follow his um, his winemaking exploits anymore. George Mahaley was a good pickup, but he only makes his own wine. Who, who else? Par- Paradigm Hill, absolutely. Paradigm Hill. Yep. David Eldridge only makes Eldridge. Yep, we've spoken um, of David a number of times uh, on this. Of uh, yep, yep. Um, I don't know. I think I, I'm definitely someone who d- doesn't follow the winemaker. I, I, I'm so used to the idea of the vineyards that I remember being, you know, they planted it, you know, the, the Anderson family planted it. The Anderson family is still working at Wild Duck Creek and I, I can't envision them moving on somewhere else, not like a, a brewery where you just start the breweries. Like uh, you know. the De Piri family at Ewingberg or something like that or... But then every so often you do hear that, you know, a former winemaker at blah, 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 have now started this. And you think, oh, that's good. But then I imagine where's the fruit come from? But there must be some winemakers, you know, that you think, gee, I wouldn't mind looking at his new releases or her new releases or... Um, 
No, I don't remember that. Oh, the, the, no, so it's, it's still, I think, of the, the wine production, mm-hmm. the winery, the, the fruit. And then you just, you, I've, I've, annoyingly, I guess, to the, for the winemakers, I just sort of think that they're secondary. And so you should be able to, the, a good winemaker just needs the good fruit. Well, that's right. You can't make good wine with bad fruit. Yeah. So well, who do you follow? Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked, actually. For me, actually, <laughs> as, as the guest, <laughs> for, for me, um, this week, actually, we lost a wine, a, a favourite winemaker of mine and someone who had a great influence on my, uh, not, not wine making so much, but just being in the wine industry was the late, great Carl Stockhausen. We lost him in The Hunter. A lot of you may not know Carl's work, but if you've ever drunk a, a Lindemann's wine, um, he made all those great Lindemann's wine. Carl was a the former manager and winemaker of the Ben Ian Lindemann's winery in The Hunter. Jeez, he was he was a he was inducted as a Hunter Valley legend in 07, but he then went on to move over to Briar Ridge and had 25 years making a... Uh, a Shiraz oh, right. and a Semion under his own namesake, uh, the Stockhausen label. But he was a legend. He was a soft gentleman. I always look forward to seeing his Briar Ridge releases year in, year out. But we lost I've him. Uh, Briar Ridge wines. They're quite good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they're on the red clay soils of Mount View. But Carl, um, yeah, he was 90. He had a good innings, but he was just a oh. lovely, soft, gentle man. I used to love his wines. But, um, yeah, other winemakers, I, I love... Um, Julian Langworthy, who's Nocturne Wines, he's got his own little estate. He actually, his day job is Deep Woods Estate, but he was originally from Winds in Winds Coonawarra under Sue Hodder. He left, went to Napstein, got involved in the judging circuit. I've never judged with Julian, but I'd love to. He's quite the character, um, <laughs> and he, he, you know, he loves Cabernet. He, he's made Deep Woods his home now, really since two thousand and eleven. But Nocturne, his own label. Um, making pretty much Chardonnay and Cabernet. He's a Cabernet specialist, but uh, he's a bit of a character as Julian. Um, what, 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 how do you see the process of a um, a winemaker who's making a name for themselves as a winemaker? Because as I sort of infl- indicated, I, I sort of follow the career of the wine more than mm. the, the winery, more so than the winemaker. But it sounds like the, these winemakers, they go off somewhere, they learn their craft at, somewhere and then maybe while they're doing that pay off their vineyard or or find some vineyard and then eventually scrounge enough quid together to start their own winery is that is this yeah i mean the path that that kind of is the part very eloquently explained I, i guess for me like Carl Stockhausen is a great example for me like when i was learning wine and growing up in the wine industry and working in the hunter you know, I'd taste a couple of wines here and then, and, and one wine would really stand out every now and then a couple of times a year. I'd go, oh, where's that wine from? Oh, it's from Lindemann's. Oh, who made that? Oh, Carl Stockhausen. All right. You go to a dinner many months later and there'd be a white wine. You'd think, oh, gee, that's nice. And, oh, who's that? Oh, it's a Briar Ridge wine. Oh, who made that? Oh, Carl Stockhausen. Like the same thing happened to me with Julian Langworthy. Like the same thing happened to me with Mac, Mac Forbes. You know, I tasted a couple of Mount Mary wines out of my own cellar. <laughs> And yeah. looked them up and so oh Sam Sam Middleton's not quite old enough to make those wines. Who's making these wines? Oh, Mac Forbes has made those wines. Oh, Mac's got his own winery. Oh, you taste his wines over there. Oh my God, the, the same character in the cabinet. Like for me, that's kind of the process with the winemakers and 
getting to follow the winemakers, you end up down a little bit of a rabbit hole trying to find out what other wines they've made, whether their own brand or whether they're working with a particular vineyard and have been over time. Um, do you think they're putting a fingerprint on the wine or do you think they're just adding polish to it uh, to, to rise it above? Well, not to say Mount Mary has dips and troughs, but you clearly identified that there was, well, there's something about this wine and, oh, that's Mac Forbes. Yeah, well, I, I can still tell you what it is t- today with Max wine in the fact that it has a certain um, freshness and vibrancy. Whether his wines are white or red, they are just fresh and fleshy. And I'm not talking about necessarily the the acid drive and the acid line. Uh, I'm just talk- which Mac does love, admittedly. But oh, I, I tell you what, I I'm in Adelaide here, and Mac is taking over Adelaide. I've been in two <laughs> restaurants and had three Mac Forbes wines so far. <laughs> Look out! <laughs> he's he's putting his fingers in some pies. He's making some uh, what was it? Gewurz Tramino. It was last night, and gosh, the person I was with, I just said, "Get a smell of that," and I went, "That smells like a perfume." That is just beautiful aromatics and so fresh. That was the thing. Yep. It, it, yeah. So for, for me, you know, that, that's what drew me to the the integrity of Max um, winemaking. But you know, it's similar. You know, Patrick Pews in Chablis, another um, winemaker that I, I I love and follow. He, he's got a similar kind of. I mean, he's a Canadian native actually, and I've known Patrick a long time, but. He's got a similar thing. He he, he just gently handles his fruit, um, and he's just his wines have a certain fleshiness to them that I really really like as well. J- Julian's Cabernet, Julian's Cabernet tastes more like Cabernet than any other winemaker <laughs> that I've had, and I've drunk loads of Bordeaux. I'm very fortunate, drunk heaps of Suva Tuscans. Julian's Cabernet tastes more like Cabernet than any other producer. Ever. I used to work at Lakes Folly, you know what I mean? I've been fortunate to work with Rod Kemp, Stephen Lake, you know, great Cabernet producers. Um, but Julian's Cabernet tastes more like Cabernet than any other. Like, it's just, just one of those things. So I guess that's how I come I suppose across all winemakers. When you're thinking of that, because there's lots of tricks of the trade, there's little things like trying to run off some juice or how much time you leave things on skin or whether you... You you throw in some whole bunches, or you uh, what sort of pressing te- um, well pressing temperature, but pressing um, barometrics. You you press things through, and little subtleties in oak usage and tank sizes, and all kinds of little things. And I guess ferment techniques, ferment yeah. techniques, and and lengths, and again temperatures. And I suppose all of that is about Ollie I, I, when I was. In working in Bendigo, the winery I was working with, we had a um, an independent judge judged everything that was uh, being produced in Bendigo, and he he pointed at the wine we were making. Uh, I was I was involved with and said that that's Barossa, and the winemaker had grown up and produced almost exclusively in the Barossa, and so there was just something in the way that they handled the fruit that left that personality to it you still would say it's from Bendigo because it has Bendigo characteristics that Brossa can't but there's still a shadow if that's the right word for it yeah absolutely yeah shadow I suppose that's yeah that's that's what you're looking at with the winemaker they've just got their own 
you, you can't completely say that the fruit is from another area, but you it's gonna it's gonna cast that shadow. It's gonna leave that impre- impression because of the little tricks that they use that somebody else wouldn't. Hmm. Yeah, that's oh so eloquent, Luke Morris. You've nailed it. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm a writer by trade, but I'm a book. Yeah. <laughs> We can buy a book. We can buy a book, can't we? If you go to where is it, Luke Morris Ha on the socials. That's the one. And dot com dot com dot au, and you can find me on the socials at vitified underscore wine underscore services. Luke Morris, I know you've been stuck and bunkered down in Radelaide, the city of churches. You've mentioned your restaurant exploits, and you've mentioned there you hinted towards a uh, aromatic white wine, but. What else have you been drinking besides Cooper's Pale Lager? <laughs> I did have – no, I haven't had a Cooper's lately. I think oh, I had a Sparkling. You're in Adelaide. I am in Adelaide, but I have had the Cooper's Sparkling. I don't think I've got into the – oh, I actually think, no, I had a can of green. Yes. Which um, I don't really recommend. I think it was just what uh, they had behind the bar where I was at the time. Uh, actually, I had to um, – was forced to consume a wal r a l l wal grenache blanc from um, South Africa, uh, and that was quite a unique little beast. To be honest with you, uh, the grenache blancs that I've had out of uh, Spain, um. I think are a bit richer, which is a style that I like. Yep. But um, there was a great persistency and a unique character, and um, yeah, not the same richness as as the Spanish roll, uh, Spanish Grenache Blancs, but the um, that roll was quite tasty. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, Grenache Blanc is thing. Grenache Blanc is a interesting core because it's a, it's a he it is it's white and it. Is quite a textural. Um, usually, it's quite textural. Is that right? Usually, it's quite textural. That's there was there was a Christmas and and freshness which I appreciated, but also was like, oh, I just I was hoping for a bit more. On yes. This. Right. So more more acidity, more citrus, more herbaceous. Is that what you're looking for? Oh no, no, I wanted a bit more murkiness. I wanted a All right. You I wanted want a- less less acidity. Yeah. Okay. A bit more flabbiness, a bit more grit. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed a Grenache Blanc from time to time, but uh, usually from the Rhone, but I, I guess it can come from the northeast of Spain, but, um, yeah, delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can get them out of there. But, yeah, there's a, there's a apparently a, a good following in South Africa as well. What have you been drinking, Campbell, my friend? Oh, look, I'm... It's hard to get off, but I'm back on the Chardonnay train. Uh, you know, like I had a wonderful glass of the current vintage Ministry of Cloud Chardonnay. I've mentioned it before on this podcast. It's just a bit of a go-to at the moment. Summer just, you know, it all comes out of Tassie, Tassie fruit for Ministry of Clouds, although they're based in McLaren Vale. They have uh, access to some Tassie Chardonnay, and it's just, yeah, minerally fresh, you know, hints of nectarine. You know, about 30, 32 bucks. It is, it is on our side at the moment, actually. Yeah, but we've got, it feels like a bit of Chardonnay month. I just can't get off the train. I got off it a few episodes <laughs> ago, but I am back on, I think, just kind of getting on board. We've got 
at Vinified this month, we've got, um, yeah, Chardonnay dinner. We've got a Shabley virtual masterclass going on. So I guess I'm just getting getting in the mood, Luke Morris, and just building up. But later in the month, we've got Thirsty Thursday and we're venturing up the highway to, to Beechworth, which will be with a Chardonnay producer. I think I'm just getting warmed up. Who, who are you um, going to be bothering up in Beechworth? Uh, I'm going to be bothering, actually, none other than uh, some trailblazers up there, uh, Jeremy Schmalzer and Tessa Brown from um, Schmalzer and Brown, which I'm really, really looking forward to because these guys are just doing some great things up there. We've had Mark Warpole from Fighting Gully Road on the uh, show before. We've had Chris Catlow from Sentio. And so, yeah, this month we're going to be bothering Tessa Brown. Um, it's quite interesting the, the, the Beechworth is establishing its, um, I was going to say identity, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but it's it's establishing a, a decent reputation for Chardonnay. It's um, mm. I suppose Legiaconda is to blame for a percentage of that. Oh yeah, and, and Sabater, and Indigo, and Sorenberg. Sorenberg, yeah, yeah. Castagna. Well, Castagna's Shiraz is. I, I, I always I, I always thought it was Castagna was a Shiraz producer. Yeah, the, but the, Chardonnay. the Chardonnay's. Worth the drop. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yep. If you can find it, find the cash in your pocket. If you can. Scale it out. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, is that where we're at? I was going to say, it's like let's, wrap up. Let's, let's stick a pin in episode five, season two. Hey, thanks for listening. I've been Luke Campbell. He's been. I'm Luke Morris. Hi. <laughs> and together we've been Luke's Talk Wine. Um, one more time, you can find me at vinified underscore wine underscore services. Don't forget to get in touch with the program, but uh, in the words of the great Tony Barber, keep smiling and bye for now. Hooroo. Vinified are the wine cellars specialists. We're Australia's only personal sommelier service. Our sommeliers work with you to build your cellar. Our aim is to bring you the wines from the freshest new producers, all based on your tastes. We can come to you, source your wines, present tastings. Think of Vinified as your wine concierge. We can do retail, we can do tastings, we can host your dinner parties, or we can procure you that rare wine. Vinified is proud to be associated with Luke's Talk Wine www.vinified.com.au